Good evening and welcome to Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Carl tonight. And our topic is the power of the covenant. We are thinking about uh, the Ten Commandments, which we were talking about also last week, but you don't have to have heard that to get something out of this. And the Old Testament tells these stories about uh, the Ark of the Covenant that, first of all, when the Ten Commandments were given, they were attended with thunder and fire and earthquakes, all kinds of exciting things. And uh, they carry the children of Israel across the Jordan into the Holy Land. Uh, they knock down the walls of Jericho. The Ark of the Covenant also knocks down the Philistine god Dagon, who was half human, half fish. And we'll talk about a little bit, I hope, what that means. And uh, it's interesting that the covenant obviously means something about the relationship between God and us, and yet we'll see repeatedly that people were terrified of it and wanted to have nothing to do with it, which is kind of sad. So if you'd like to hear some more about that this evening, do come along with us on that ride, and let's open with a prayer, shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for gathering us together in your most holy name. You are the one God of heaven and earth. You are the Word made flesh. Please reveal yourself to us, Lord, as we study the pages of your Word. Amen. So nice to be with you all here in this room, sending out love to those of you online and getting the audio. And a real pleasure to be with you on this beautiful evening here. In a way, you could see the, um, the Ark of the Covenant is sort of like portable divine power. And it is to be used with a certain degree of caution. Uh, and, and we'll be studying what that means exactly. Let's look at the circumstances first of how... We're, there are a lot of stories we could read. We'll just choose some. But uh, let's go to Exodus, the second book of the Bible there, chapter 19. The Ten Commandments are expressed in two different places, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And this is the chapter before you first hear the Ten Commandments. You know, th this is when all the children of Israel are being prepared for this. They've escaped from Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. Let's start at 19, verse 10 there, and read at some length. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And, let... and, and the idea being that the Ten Commandments are about to be given, and they, they, they have to be ready. They have to prepare themselves. Go on. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying... Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Let's hit pause again there for a second. You see the irony that I'm talking about? You have something that's about a divine covenant, the Ten Commandments, a covenant between God and human beings, and yet they're warned to get nowhere near it on pain of death. Isn't that a little weird? Like God is reaching out to us, but don't go near it or, or you'll be killed. Go on. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. 
When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Okay, and uh, so there'll be this great trumpet blast. And uh, part of the idea that's being conveyed here is the power of this covenant. Uh, at a time long, long before movies or anything like that, the drama of this delivery of the Ten Commandments can't be exaggerated. You know, it, it's impossible to miss that this was a, a, a huge deal. Uh, go on. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Yes, this was terrifying. This, the, the, the delivery of the law was a terrifying thing. Go on. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke mm. because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Mm. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Now that's pretty amazing that Moses would speak and God would answer him. That's quite astonishing. Go on. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. See, you would die just for even looking at what, you know. So you get the sense of power, but it's also terrifying, and people are forewarned. Go on. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Mm. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Yes, that's right. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. We did a Bible study at one point about all this going up and coming down. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, and so then you have in chapter 20, God spoke all these words saying, and here are the, the Ten Commandments. And look at verse 18 right after the Ten Commandments. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Yes, and what did they say? Then they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. So is that a successful covenant? <laughs> you know, God's trying to make a connection with people. And they're saying, well, we don't want to deal with God. He's terrifying. Just let us deal with you, and you talk to God, because it seems to be okay for you, but not for us. And uh, let's turn to Exodus chapter 24. And uh, just look at the first two verses there, because even the elders and the high priest and so on, the same rule applies. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. 
and Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with them. Yes, right. So the people don't come at with all. Them. These top elders are allowed to come to a distance. Only Moses is allowed to go all the way. Again, just this sense of, of something terrifying. Uh, turn to the right and go through Numbers and Leviticus to Deuteronomy, where we read some recapping of the story. Deuteronomy is called the second, it's named for the second law because the Ten Commandments were given again. And uh, look at chapter 4, and let's start at verse 7 there, and go to 13. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law, which I set before you this day? Mm. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb. When the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. And here's this wonderful little description. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, you heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. Hmm. You only heard a voice. Hmm. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Yes, this provokes the thought that it is a covenant, but it's a covenant of unequal parties, isn't it? And so God is presenting this covenant, but it's not presented in a way of like, hey, do you want to do this? Oh, okay. And two of you sort of agree. No, it's like he's commanding, here are the Ten Commandments on two tables of stone. You know, so it's very clear who is the more powerful party there. Um, that's fun. And look at chapter 5 in Deuteronomy, verses 22 to 27. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. Hmm. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. It's interesting that this was both an oral, you know, like God said these things and then they were also written down. You know, the Ten Commandments came in those two ways. So can I just clarify, this is yes. a speech that Moses is giving? Is yes, it is. Okay. And you see right before this, it gave the Ten Commandments again. Mm -hmm. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, and there they all are. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, and so on. And then this is uh, Moses saying, this is what you heard, you know, up on the mountain there. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, 
yet he still lives. Yes, and this was the um, this was the exciting news. There was the belief that if God communicated with you, you would surely die. You know that generally, I think, for good reason. But people would think that if an angel appeared to you or something like that, that meant you were on your way out. And I think that does happen to some people. But here. God talked with people, and yet they stayed alive. That's a pretty low bar uh, for the covenant, you know. <laughs> but that was exciting to people. Oh, we didn't die. Go on. Uh, Verse 25. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. <laughs> For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. Yes, hear it and do it. Yes, that's right. So there again, same deal as we read before. So Moses, you, you deal, we can't deal with God. We're lucky that we lived the first time. We're not going to press our luck. Uh, but, you know, uh, you be the go-between. Uh, and again, just these wonderful descriptions of the mountain on fire and quaking and the trumpet and so on. The smoke like a great furnace and thick darkness. Uh, so we're talking tonight about the power of the covenant and just the way that it was brought into the world was in a very powerful way where uh, people were in fear for their lives as this came forth. Uh, let's skip to the next book of Joshua and uh, look at chapter 3. And uh, this is about the parting of the Jordan River. There were two sort of water crossings, the Red Sea and then the Jordan, to get into the Holy Land. So let's read a little of this from Joshua chapter 3. Right at the beginning? Yes. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. And listen to these instructions and how they bear on the Ark of the Covenant. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Go after it. And there's a but. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Yes, yeah, so watch where it goes. Leave about a half a mile between you and it so that you'll know which way to go. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This is a leadership situation where Moses was the leader, 
and much trusted and loved and so on. Now we shift to Joshua, and is he really as good as Moses? And today everybody will find out that he is. Mm. Keep going? Yes. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the river, sorry, when you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. I like this little speech here. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Hmm. didn't even stumble. That's impressive. <laughs> Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So you notice that it's the ark of the Lord that does this. As soon as this touches water, that's the difference maker. Then the water stops and they can all cross over. And so they did this. They carry the ark there. They dip in the brim of the water. Then all the waters stop and all the people... Read verse 17 there. Then the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Yes, uh, in the old King James, clean over Jordan. They passed clean over Jordan. Look at chapter 4. Uh, let's go to verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. This is essential for good leadership to be feared. Go on. <laughs> then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, mm. that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Yes, you see, so I, I don't mean to make fun of this at all, but it does seem like they're literally carrying it. It's like a portable divine power. You know, they carry it into the water. It's, it's able to stop the water. And then as soon as they walk out, boom, then the water flows again. And they're in the Holy Land. This, is a, this, was, uh, uh, this was the goal of their long journey was to get, they'd wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Finally, they come around and, Various different dramatic things happen, and they finally come to the River Jordan, and now they've crossed over into the land of milk and honey thanks to the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, uh, look at Joshua chapter 6, where there's another story of the power of the Ark. Let's just start at the first verse there. You're doing a great job, dear reader. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. 
none went out and none came in. And let me explain uh, that when you cross the Jordan, so they crossed from east to west to get into the land. And one of the first things, the nature of the, of the Holy Land is that it, it is uh, sort of low at the edges. In fact, at the Dead Sea is below sea level, the lowest places on earth. And, and um, uh, But it rises up to these mountains and hills, Jerusalem and so on, has the whole mountain chain in, in the center of the land there. And so Jericho's down in the low part of the land just after you come in, and it's this walled city, powerful walled city with the stone walls. And uh, so this is their first encounter of enemies in, in the land, and uh, here they are in this walled stronghold. So how is this going to go? Go on. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around, all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Yes, the ark. So it's critical that the ark is doing this circuit. Right. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. And listen to the number of mentions of the ark in this next little bit here. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant Ding. and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Ding. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. Ding. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. Bing. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the Ark Bing. while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout. Then you shall shout. <laughs> so he had the ark Bing. of the Lord <laughs> circle the city going around at once. Is this annoying yet? No one. <laughs> then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Bing. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord Bing. went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord Bing. while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. Now these people are besieged. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's going out. They know that these people have come into the land. They've heard the reputation. They figure, well, we're safe because the Jordan's there. Whoops, they got over the Jordan. Now they're right next door. So you close it up. It's a state of siege. But then 
It's like they're doing something so weird. They're not attacking. They don't shoot anything. They don't throw any burning thing inside there. They just walk around once a day and then, you know, retreat. Very odd and in absolute silence. It's an amazing kind of picture, isn't it? Just all these people just walking around. And yet it's got to, like, what are they doing? You know, I don't get it. This is not normal warfare. I, I don't understand what's going on. Do go on. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. Mm. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Let's skip down to verse 20 there. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. That's right. They took the city. So did they touch a thing? Nobody touched anything. No weapons were used. Not, you know, there was just their voices, the trumpet, and the ark going around, round and round and round, and bang. So imagine your surprise when the thing that's defending you falls down absolutely flat and they can just come straight to, you, you know, I love, it emphasize it twice. It didn't just sort of teeter or crumble or something, bang, <laughs> right down flat, and in they go. Uh, so that is something powerful that the ark did. Uh, and let's read one more story like this. Go to the right through Judges to 1 Samuel, if you will. And let's look at chapter 5, a briefer story here. And then soon we'll talk about the meaning of some of these things, hopefully. So chapter 5, right at the beginning there. And I should explain that at some point they foolishly, without the Lord's command, took the Ark of the Covenant into battle. You see in 4 verse 3, they said, let's fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So they're fighting this battle with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were people who lived. So I mentioned before that if you're going from east to west across the land, you start out at the level of River Jordan, which is low. You go up into the mountains, then you go down the other side to the Mediterranean. And the Philistines were in that low land on the other side. And the low land is important in the meaning of it. And so they said... You know, without any command from the Lord, they said, let's get the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines end up taking the Ark of the Covenant. And it's a great uh, disaster. And the high priest keels over backwards and dies. And uh, so we start in chapter 5 when the Philistines have a hold of the Ark of God. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. <coughs> When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Okay, now Dagon was a Philistine god who was worshipped. There were other gods as well. But Dagon was basically what you might call a merman or something. He was human on the top half, but a fish on the bottom. And this is very important in the meaning of it. 
and so Dagon is this god. And so you can imagine their motivation for bringing the Ark of God into the house of Dagon. It's sort of like the Roman uh, emperors who would win a battle. They would bring the great warlord of the enemy and just humiliate them through, to, you know, march them through. To, you know, this is their spoil of war. They got the Ark of God. So they're bringing in before Dagon to say, Dagon, you helped us win here, and, and now we're, we're mighty and everything. So what happens? When the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Mm. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. Yes, he's just an idol, so it takes people to sort of prop him back up, right? And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Mm. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Yes, or in the grand language of the old King James, only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Yes, okay, let's just read verse 5. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Yes. Just avoid stepping on the on the on the threshold because that's a bad that's a bad place. So, uh, if they thought they were bringing the ark of God and this was some sort of trophy for Dagon, it didn't work out so well for Dagon. He kept inadvertently bowing down before before the ark and the second time his head and the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. There's just one more scripture I want to read, and then we'll talk about these things. So let's go to the middle of your Bible, to the Psalms. And I want to go to Psalm 132. And we'll just read verse 8, although there are many wonderful things in there. But this is a striking uh, passage in connection with our topic tonight. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. The ark of your strength. We're talking about the power of the covenant and the ark of your strength. Arise into your rest, you and the ark of your strength. And our dear reader has not yet burst into song, so we're doing all right so far. And um, <laughs> But this is a familiar hymn around here. The, um, so, okay, what does, what does this mean? that the Ark of the Covenant had this power. It had a power that terrified people. People were worried about dying. There was a story that we haven't read tonight where Uzzah reached out his hand and touched the Ark and he actually did die. Um, and uh, many, many people in Beth Shemesh, which we also didn't read, I forget the number, but it was in the tens of thousands, died because of the presence of the Ark there. Uh, it was a terrifying thing. What does this mean? What does this correspond to? And how does all that terror fit in with the idea that this is a covenant from God saying, hey, I want to work together? Let's ponder a little bit um, the nature of what was in the Ark of the Covenant. So you had those two tablets of stone. And you may be familiar with the idea that the one tablet held commandments that have to do with God, if you think about, and, and they're, they, they take a while to say, there's those three commandments at the beginning, uh, but there are lots more words in them, and those are all about uh, the name of God and keeping the Sabbath holy and, and all that, no other gods before my face. So they're God-related commandments. And then 
I'll skip over to number five through ten, depending on how you number it. Different people number them different ways. But those are all about things that we're not supposed to do. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, and no coveting, and so on, is, is basically the gist of it. And in the midst of them, in one place at least, Swedenborg says that the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, crossed over from one tablet to the other, sort of linked the two, which is interesting kind of imagery about both parents somehow, you know, crossing over from the side of God to the side of human beings. And Swedenborg says that these two tablets were done in such a way that they could face each other. And this is meaningful because it's about God saying, if you do the things that are on your stone, I'll do the things that are on my stone. You know, this is our covenant together. It's a little bit like, you know, they have that stone in the book of Revelation where it says you get a new name that no one knows except uh, the, the person it's in regard to. Uh, that they would take a stone in ancient times when two people made a covenant. You'd break a stone, and it would have half the writing on one side and half on the other, and then you take your stone, and later they would come together, and there's stories from ancient myths like this where you put the two stones together, and you say, oh, yes, that really is you. You know, now I know you're who you say you are kind of thing. And the tablets in a little bit, uh, or a little bit that way, the two tables of stone, the covenant between God and us, and it's all about what we are not to do in order to enter into a covenant. You know, in other words, the things that stand in God's way can be summarized as that killing, stealing, committing adultery, bearing false witness, uh, and coveting. And if we can uh, stop doing those things, then God will give us a love for him and a way of honoring the Sabbath, honoring our parents, and so on. So what was it about that covenant? The covenant is a two-party arrangement, isn't it? And it was an oral covenant, and then it was written down. What was it about such a cooperative, here's God, here's humankind, here's the deal, you know, you do your part, I'll do my part. You know, it's a beautiful thing about, about God coming down and meeting the human race. Why was that so terrifying to everybody and, and sort of deadly force? So what's going on there? And what does it mean in particular these stories of the parting of the River Jordan, the story of the walls of Jericho crashing down, and the story of Dagon falling on his face and the second time having his hands and his head cut off on the threshold there. Uh, well, it's obvious that the, we, we saw last time uh, that at the end of Numbers chapter 10, whenever the ark would leave, Moses would say something, he would actually call it the Lord or Jehovah. You know, he would say, arise, O Lord. And when it would come back, he would say, um, you know, return to the many thousands of Israel. And he would call, again, call the ark Jehovah, the Lord. Um, so it was identified with God, but it's sort of God moving. It's portable divine power. And... Um, uh, so what does it mean? Let's look at these individual stories. Uh, one of the meanings, if you understand the way the Holy Land is laid out and you've got this river of entrance, this means the, the Ark of the Covenant providing you a pathway in there has two meanings in my mind. One is that it's our journey. We get out of our Egypt. We wander around in the wilderness. And then the Lord admits us 
to our own deeper nature. Uh, when you come into the Holy Land, it's really getting into your the deep condition of yourself. That's one way of looking at it. And there, the land is full of enemies. And the first enemies are right there in Jericho. And so when you come into that, so part of what that means to me is that, is that covenant is able to bring us into our inner selves. It's able to open our inner selves up to us. It says that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed when the Lord came into the world, that the Lord can show us what's in ourselves. In Hebrews 4.12, it talks about the, the word that, that's a, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and the Lord is the word made flesh. He's able to bring us into uh, our inner self. The other meaning, uh, ultimately what it means, is to be brought into heaven, right? The, the land of milk and honey, that the Lord has the power to open heaven to us. That covenant, our following of that covenant, can bring us into heaven. It can bring us into a place in our inner selves where we deal with the things that stand in our way, and it can bring us to the point where those enemies are vanquished and dealt with. Uh, that is a significantly beautiful thing. You don't necessarily feel, you feel the power of it, you don't necessarily feel the beauty of it, when you see all that thunder and lightning and fire on the top of the mountain and the earth is quaking, everybody's terrified. But that's what's going on. The Lord is coming down. The part of us that is terrified is the outer self. Uh, these things are foolishness to the natural man, it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Uh, neither can he discern them because they're spiritually discerned. Uh, the outer self doesn't know what's going on and is terrified with good reason because things are going to get a little shaken up when the Lord comes that close. You don't stay the same. You know, all that emphasis, even the priests had to be consecrated. Everybody had to be consecrated, had to be cleansed and washed their clothes and all that. Uh, there had to be a purification just to even be ready to see it from a distance um, because something of the Lord is coming in. And so you see this in the New Testament when the Lord walks through the, the, the streets and the devils are crying out and going crazy and stuff. Uh, it, it has that powerful effect. And yet where the Lord is coming from is from just love and truth. That's, that's what he's doing there. Um, so that's some sense to me of what it means that that covenant is what takes us across the water. And something I want to say at this point is that I... I really think, based on the last number of Bible studies, uh, that the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus himself when, when he's resurrected. He lived that law perfectly. This is why it's so ironic that people say in the name of Christianity that the Ten Commandments were done away with. He, he was that law. He became that law. The veil was torn from top to bottom. And so when you think about the Lord... I like to think about the Lord as kind of portable divine power, divine power that come, can go through the wilderness. It can go anywhere. It can go into any dark place or whatever. It, it can go into the land of the Philistines. Uh, the Lord can go anywhere because he is both divine and human. Isn't he the perfect marriage of this is God and this is Jesus, the human 
part, you know, that they, they become perfectly united. They, the picture of the Ten Commandments. So the Lord is that living. It's not that he just sort of does it for us. That covenant still obtains. We have to follow him. But he can take us into our inner self. He can, he can deal with our enemies in there. So what are those enemies? Well, isn't it interesting that both of the enemies that we read about tonight, Jericho, the stronghold, and Dagon in the land of the Philistines are in the lowlands. They are not up in the mountains. Another thing that Swedenborg says that the Holy Land means is that it means the church. And what Swedenborg means by the church is... Um, the sort of central or dominant religion in the world at a given time. He says that at every time throughout history, there's been some religion that was the, the primary means of connecting heaven and earth, and then it didn't really matter so much what everybody else was saying or doing. That was kind of the point of connection. And uh, so the Holy Land has that meaning, that point of connection. It means the connection of heaven and earth. So Jericho is something in the church. And the Philistines, the Philistines, the children of Israel's ancient enemy, some of them were giants, you know. Uh, they were part of the church. They're not outside it. They're not some different enemy. They are within the bounds of the religion, but they're not doing it right. The Jericho means uh, that sort of that first thing that you come into those first teaching it's like an evil there right inside the land it's down in the low area there's some evil in there and it's built this fortress for itself you if you've read Swedenborg you know that he says that evil defends itself with falsity so you have all these false ideas I don't know if you've seen this in yourself friends you probably have isn't it amazing how uh, anything like that will have a whole phalanx of arguments. Well, it's okay, and somebody else did it, and they were all right, and I said, it's really, I'm sorry, it doesn't hurt anybody, and that's, you know, you've got all these reasons that are like a stronghold that protect that thing, so you're not going to be able, you know, it's not going to be easy to uproot that thing because it's got all these reasonings just stacked up, mortared together in this powerful uh, wall, um, and so this represents a kind of evil that's inside the church and it's inside us. Um, it's not some sort of pagan thing <laughs> off over there somewhere. It, it's a corruption. It's a profanation of something holy that's going on in there. And it's twisted the teachings of the church into this kind of pseudo argument that sounds good, but it's actually defending this evil that's sitting in there in the church. So what the story of Jericho means is that and these are multi-layered stories. They have multiple layers of meaning. But uh, the Ark of the Covenant, that covenant between the Lord and us, if we're following that covenant, uh, the power of the Lord is totally able to deal with that. And it doesn't even touch it. It just walks around it from the outside. And I think the walking around, I don't know, but I think the walking around is like you do a complete 360 survey, right? You just look at it. Oh, yeah, here's what's on the front. Here's what's on the side. This is what's around the other side. Here it is again. We'll look again tomorrow and check again. 
You look at the whole thing all the way around. It's like examining something in ourselves, in our society, in our world, and saying, oh, yeah, it's inside the Holy Land, but that's a stronghold of hell right there. And, you, and it's the covenant that has the power. They carry it. How many times did it say it? How many times did I have that beep in there? You know, it says it again and again, at least once and twice in those verses uh, that it was carrying that Ark of the Covenant around. Then the trumpet is the sounding of divine truth. Now, Swedenborg says that people think of truth. They think of truth as just like information or thoughts you know, mental data or something. But he said, if you could see in the spiritual world, you could see that that is a substance. It is a power. There is unbelievable power. There's actually infinite power in divine truth. And that's represented in those trumpets and also in all those voices. Silent, round and around, round and round, round and round. Then the last day, bam, and then everybody shouts. And when all this truth comes forth, fascinating it doesn't matter how mighty that whole thing looked it just wimps out instantly like the holy right down bang just like dagon does just drops like a stone it is a stone it's just bang right down uh because in the face you see what's false about that there's all sorts of false things that that can represent but let's say the teaching that the Ten Commandments don't make any difference, the teaching in Christianity that the Ten Commandments have been done away with. That could be something that's sitting there in Jericho, and it's got all these arguments and passages and so on, has built this big wall around itself. But when you actually deploy the Ten Commandments in your life, it makes such a difference that in time, isn't it interesting that seven, the seven days of creation, like you have to go through a full state, but by the seventh day, when love takes charge and everything, that thing just drops because it has no reason being there. It's, there's, there's, there's nothing there. You know, it's nonsense. And there is no stronghold. You know, the, the Lord is just able to deal with that. And all the people go straight in. The other one, Dagon, is kind of fun. Dagon's a merman, half human, half fish. The top half is human, bottom half is fish. And this is their mighty God. This is a Philistine God. Swedenborg says again and again that the Philistines represent people within the church, within the religion or whatever, who are in faith alone. They are people who can talk the talk. They can talk your ear off with the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They're people who are actually nasty and cruel. And you see the Philistines are repeatedly that way. They are very external, which is why they're not up in the mountains. So they know the chapter and verse and the blah, 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 blah. They're not outside. They're in it. They're in the Holy Land. And this is why they're a particularly virulent enemy, is they're actually, in a sense, kind of part of the clan, but they're down in the lowlands because they're very external, focused on their, their senses, sensory perspective, and they're not living by the religion. And the effect of that is that you have a human top half which is that you have all this understanding, you have this knowledge, but the bottom half is as cold as a fish. There's no love, no charity, no good deeds. There's just an understanding 
and then this fishy, grody tail, you know, that's what you get. That's the Philistine thing. That's their great thing. It's like, I understand so much and I'm completely cold, you know, that, that's, that's the Philistine thing. And I wouldn't want to point any fingers, good friends. I'm sure you can think of examples yourself. But it does seem like this is a spirit that can infect religions. Can't, it? Can't you get people in religions who are kind of self-righteous, who they know all this and all the other things? There's no love. Where's the love? You know? There's no love. It's, it's a cold fish on, on that outer level. Again, when that thing is in the face of the actual divine love and the divine truth that comes from divine love. So divine love is reaching down for the salvation of the whole human race and has put out this divine truth, which is very simple. It's only 180 Hebrew words, but it just says, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing, and don't do that other thing. And that's what it says. And that power of those marching orders from the Lord and people's following those that creates a connection between you and the Lord, Dagon just falls flat because it's got no love. It's standing on a little fishy, wimpy fish tail, you know? Can't even stand up. <laughs> face plant, you know? That's what Dagon does in the face of that. And next day, so he gets propped up. Isn't it wonderful? You ever seen that where people sort of, wait a minute, our thing fell down. Let's prop it back up. And they prop it back up with some more arguments, some more reinforcement and everything. No, no, this really is a good way to be. Next day, face plant. And this time the head has come off and the hands. It has no power, no more power. It's just nothing. It can just right there. And uh, this is the power. So something that I'm fond of thinking lately is that all these things in the Old Testament, they, they happened, I believe they happened, I believe those miracles happened, and they're, they're true. But the most important part of the story hasn't even happened yet. I think this has yet to happen. We have not even had the go-in with the ark and the walls fall down moment yet. That is still to come because the Lord is more powerfully present now than he's ever been. And when we start to see him in the pages of his word, and by the way, the Ten Commandments and the covenant have everything to do with the word, don't they? That's the covenant, the, the new covenant, the New Testament or whatever. It's the Ark of the Testimony. It has all to do with the word and with the Lord's relationship with us. This will come in and this will be able to knock down those profane things that have been constructed in the name of religion and are heavily reinforced and years and years, centuries of concrete all around them. Uh, but the real thing can knock that thing down in seven days, you know, without touching it, just by being near it. You know, the contrast is so evident that it just drops. And that Dagon, do we still have a little fishiness? Can you smell it sometimes, friends? <laughs> yes, it's still out there. There's some pride, there's some knowledge, there's something that's sort of, it's kind of half human. If you just look over the countertop, they look normal, but you know, below, no, it's just a fish. And um, the Lord knows how to deal with that too. 
He can he can deal with that. Uh, that divine power. It is highly ironic that God is reaching out with tremendous love, bowing the heavens and coming down onto the top of the mountain, inviting Moses up, really wants to be in engagement with everybody. You know, it's the whole point of the covenant. And all the people are just saying, oh, you talk to him. I can't deal, you know. And uh, this, is, this is the human response to the Lord's reaching out in love with this uh, covenant. But it's only terrifying to the lower self. What happens to Moses when he goes up there and spends time? Comes down, his face is glowing. He's not hurt. He's better than he was before. It strengthened him. It's, it's a good thing. It's great. There's a person named Obed-Edom who gets the ark. Right after the ark killed all these people in Beth Shemeth, it goes to Obed-Edom. He's blessed in all his household for three months. It's all great. You know, when you're in the right condition, that thing is only helpful. It's not, a ter- you know, it's not primarily a ter- terrifying thing. But it's important that the Lord is putting hell on notice, you know. And, and he did that when he came down on the mountain. It's just like, heads up, everybody. This is more powerful than you are. This is something holy. This is something of God. And what he's saying is, I can deal with your problems. You walk with me. I can deal with your problems. I can take you into the back room that you've never gone into before. And I can open this door and kick that devil out. I can deal with this over here and that'll fall down. I can, I can make this place into a heaven. I have that power if you work with me. That's all in the power of the covenant. And it's all in the person of Jesus. He is the Ten Commandments in portable form. So, um, I love that passage that we read where it says the living God. Wasn't that great? Where it says the living God can deal with the Girgashites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Hittites and that long list of... You know, those are all those enemies that are in there. And the living God, that's what this, this, this Ark of the Covenant is all about. The living God has the power to deal with all those things. So uh, in a perhaps lengthy conclusion, I believe Jesus is the Ten Commandments in portable form, very accessible form, right with us can walk with us into any situation and present, be present with us. He can part the boundaries around our own inner self and bring us in there, into our hearts. He can deal with the enemies that are in there. Just his truth can knock down walls of bad teachings around these strongholds of hell inside ourselves. And if there's any part of us that's worshiping some Philistine god with half an understanding on the inside but a cold fish on the outside, his presence can show that that has no life or coherence. It has no power and is not in charge of our lives. But we have to follow him in order to do our part. And it does behoove us to think twice before committing because there is a real power there. And it's a little terrifying to our outer self. So it's worth thinking twice about. But in short, I think that covenant is a beautiful image of the power of the living God in our day-to-day lives. Thank you, friends. Will you join me in a closing prayer? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
we thank you for embodying the covenant, for coming into the world, for perfectly following those laws, for becoming divinely human so that you are accessible to us and can come with us into our dark places and drive out those persistent enemies in us. You have the power to open heaven to us. You can bring us into the Holy Land and you can make that an enemy-free zone, a place flowing with milk and honey. Our Father who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, Lord, so we get, friends, so that we get to enjoy the fire, the thunder, the earthquakes, the presence of God in our lives. Amen.